Hi, everyone. Welcome to Being Patient Perspectives. I'm Deborah Kahn, founder of Being Patient. Today, we're going to talk about dementia related to sports, um, in particular CTE, um, which we hear a lot of athletes getting years, um, getting diagnosed with years after um, they've played a sport, especially um, professionally. Well, joining me today is Stephen Barbieri. He joins us from Modesto, California. Um, he is a martial arts guru, um, for lack of a better word, uh, Stephen. Um, and you, you played Taekwondo, is that right? Yeah, I practiced it. We don't say play, but yes, I, I trained in Taekwondo, yes. And tell us a little bit about that career. When, what age did you start to play? play uh, I, I, because I have athlete kid, athletes that play soccer and rugby, I always say play, practice Taekwondo. Um, actually, I started back in high school. Um, I used to get picked on in school by some of the guys. I was able to talk to the girls a little bit easier. So I was getting picked on. So I figured I needed to try and learn how to protect myself a little bit better. So I started taking Taekwondo at, I think, the age of 16. So I've been doing it for 43 plus years. And then um, I realized that for a lot of people, that's hard to make a living, you know, doing martial arts. So I ended up, you know, I was a banker with Wells Fargo Bank as a career for 32 years. But martial arts was always a part of my life and, and even more now that I've been retired from the bank. So um, let's we'll come back to, to today and how you you still practice um, martial arts. But I want to know um, when you were practicing Taekwondo, did you take a lot of hits to the head? Yes. And that, that was I trained back in the mid 70s where there was no there wasn't headgears. There wasn't the the hand uh, chops and things like that. Those were just coming out when we used to train. We basically you you put a mouth. You had a mouthpiece and a cup. That was how we trained at our school. So and in Taekwondo, it's it's a Korean style, a lot of kicking. And so it was almost like an insult to kick below the waist, you know, kick them in the legs, which they do nowadays for different types of, you know, MMA. But so ours was a lot of kicks to the body. And, you know, you wanted to kick to the head because I was even, a, you know, a better opportunity, a better shot. So even in classes training on a regular basis, I was there five days a week. If you did the sparring, you're going to get kicked in the head. And there was, like I said, you had no pads on your feet at that time and you had no headgear. Now, if you go to tournaments, they have the mouth guard, the headgear, the pads on the feet, you know, the pads on the hands. It's much more um, organized and, you know, safety things for the kids and stuff. And they don't really uh, encourage, you know, the hard, fast kicks to the heads anymore. So do you, do you remember getting concussions a lot or was it just that you got hit really hard and was there any concussion protocol back then? No, that's like, you know, that's kind of, kind of like a new word that, you know, you hear a concussion protocol that wasn't even around, I don't think three or four or five years ago, let alone 30 something years ago when I was really, you know, starting the train and I was in that, that's those higher level of competition. So there wasn't, I mean, you'd get kicked in the head and they would do like they did to the old football players, a little smelling salt, wake you up and are you okay? And of course you would say yes. And you'd get back in there. Or if you got, you know, kicked at the school, it's smelling salts hit you to the side and they, you know, ask you to rotate back in or whatever so that you wouldn't like falling off a horse. You wouldn't be afraid to get back in there and go at it again. So I there were several times in tournaments I got hit in the head as well as hit people in the head. Um, and then I hit my head on a diving board when I when I dove in high school, you know, just a bad diving accident. I was in a car accident where I hit my head. Um, I got hit by a car. So there's been a, a lot of 
things throughout my life where I've had concussions or head injuries. But like I said, doing martial arts all those years back in the day when they didn't have concussion protocols or safety gear, I suffered probably a lot of minor concussions as well as, you know, full blown concussions. So you were given like a lot of people with different types of dementia are given an early onset Alzheimer's. I mean, first, I'm presuming you were told you might might have been told you had MCI um, only later to um, be told you have early onset Alzheimer's. T tell us about the time when you noted something wasn't quite right. Well, that's the thing is that as a person with the disease, you're not going to notice it. So that's why it's tougher for somebody who's living alone to really get a diagnosis because you don't see those changes happening to yourself. Um, the way it was happening was with my wife and myself. Um, my wife and I used to argue a lot about things and they really seemed to uh, revolve around her telling me to do something and me not doing it. Well, that sounds like a normal husband, but <laughs> that wasn't the case. Like one day she asked me to pick up the girls from school. Um, I was leaving town for Fresno and I, I thought I told her that. And I just, and she said that I told her I would pick up the girls. Also at three o'clock, she gets a phone call at work saying the girls haven't been picked up. She calls me and then I say, well, I'm in Fresno. She says, well, you didn't tell me that. And I go, yes, I did. And I go, you didn't tell me to pick up the girls and we get in a big aisle. Well, yes, I did. And da, 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 da. And finally she says, you know what? I'm gonna have your hearing checked. And that's basically how my um, diagnosis all started was started with the hearing test. I did find my left ear was just, you know, a little off. But then um, during the conversation, they were asking me things and then they had to repeat, you know, instructions or whatnot. So they started doing some minor cognitive testing and then they did the EEG and the CT, all the different, you know, scans and things on my brain. So it's strange, like a lot of people, my diagnosis changed. So the first one, because I was in a high stressful job at Wells Fargo Bank, I was the vice president, district manager, charge of 12 offices, one of the largest districts within our company area. And uh, I was having problems remembering things and forgetting things. Um, so th there was just a lot going on in my life at that time. So did the doctor, how did you do on the cognitive test? And when, when did you make the association that it was cognition um, and, and actually memory? That when they first did the test, um, the, the test they did was, uh, it's funny, it's draw a clock and it's always at 1110. And when I did a clock and it looked really bad and it wasn't specific enough, now I could do it in my sleep because when I failed so badly, I went home and drew clocks for days but I couldn't draw the clock very well. Then there's the old thing about remember these five words and they would say, and then, you know, random words, there was no connection to them. And then they distract you and they come back five minutes later. I never could, I never could remember all five. Like a lot of people, I remember the first one and the last one and never could get the ones in the middle. Sometimes if they coached me enough, like, was it this one or that one? I might be able to remember, but if they could just say, can you tell me those five words? I couldn't remember. And so one test led to another test, led to another test. Same thing with my diagnosis. My first diagnosis, because in a high stressful job at the bank was pseudo dementia. So when they said pseudo dementia, my wife and I looked at each other and said, well, what does that mean? Because again, we hadn't done any self-education. Well, pseudo dementia is based on stress or lack of vitamins like vitamin D or magnesium. So it's correctable. So when our the neurologist explained that to us, we had high hopes. That was my initial diagnosis with pseudo dementia. Well, then as time went along and testings went along, she changed it and went from pseudo dementia then to myocognitive impairment. 
And then they did all kinds of other different tests, the EEGs and CAT scans and stuff. And they finally did the, um, the PET scan. And with the PET scan, they could find the damage on both sides, my temporal lobe and some in the front. So, of course, they thought from temporal lobe dementia. Well, the problem is nobody sat down and had like a life conversation with me because, again, they heard about the, you know, me doing martial arts for 40 something years and hitting my head in diving boards as they interviewed me. But nobody asked me. I mean, I'm sorry. They saw me coming in in a suit and tie as a banker. So they just assumed I was a banker, not knowing about doing all these other things, you know, martial arts for 40 years. So somebody finally sat down and had like a life conversation for 45 minutes with me and went, oh, my goodness, you're a classic CTE. And again, some people out there or, or as you read, they say there's no way to properly diagnose somebody. The only other way is to do an autopsy. And I'm not ready for that test yet. So I'd say I'm clinically align for CTE because you cannot get a 100% diagnosis of that alive. So, and, and why is that? Why can't you? Because um, if you do a CT scan, uh, did you get a PET scan? Did you say ever or no? Yes, that was the final thing was the PET scan showed okay. the damages and stuff. And that's when they, they had to stop doing the searching because that definitely locked it in, but it confused them because it was on my temporal lobes and my frontal lobe, they thought the frontal temporal lobe, because nobody had done that conversation finding out that I'd done martial arts, because I was showing right. up on a premise as a suit and tie on my way home from the bank or taking a long lunch or something. So they don't, they didn't see any plaques in your hippocampus, the part where your memory, it, it was mainly in the frontal cortex region of your brain, the yes. front, front two lobes. And I, I can understand why, because that's usually associated with frontal temporal lobe dementia, right? Which right. Um, we hear um, really impacts behavior. You know, um, people will act inappropriately or if they have FTD, was, was it? like that for you at all? Were you getting more angry than usual or were you exhibiting strange um, out of character uh, behaviors? My wife is off camera. She's shaking her head saying <laughs> yes, 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 with a big smile. Um, a lot of my friends noticed because, you know, the way I was raised and brought up and stuff, I never swore. My friends never heard me, you know, cuss or whatever. All of a sudden words were coming out and people were, I mean, you know, friends of mine that would swear all the time, but when they heard me say, they're like, what? And my wife would see me get upset or grouchy a little bit faster and whatnot. And she knew me not as a violent or aggressive person. Um, so those types of personality changes. And then um, I try and use a conservative phrase. My wife and my daughter say something different, but at the dinner table, I get, I don't want to say, they say inappropriate, but I say things and do things and I'm silly in, you know, in a weird, strange way sometimes, which is not my personality. So um, when, why is it though, if they can see the plaques and where they are, they can't tell you a hundred percent that you have CTE? Because it's not, it's not plaques they're seeing. So the original PET scan I had was a traditional PET scan. And believe it or not, there's actually an, uh, uh, an amyloid plaque PET scan that you can have as well. I actually had one of those probably about a year or so ago, and it didn't show any of the plaques. So in my type of dementia, I don't have plaques. So what my, um, what's the word? Tra um, Tau. Tau. Tra 
the trademark for my my type of disease is the tau protein. Right. So the tau protein is what they 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 could see um, because there was no amyloid plaque because they actually tested me to see if maybe I had what's called dual dementia where I had CT as well as Alzheimer's and the PET scan the amyloid PET scan showed no amyloid. So I don't have the Alzheimer's. My type of dementia is the CTE is what they believe based on lifestyle. So um, you said before before we started this interview, you felt, you said that you didn't feel like getting a dementia diagnosis um, was the end of life for you. I mean, there's still ways to improve your health and uh, keep living. So tell us a little bit about how you've changed um, according to being diagnosed with CTE, how, how you've really changed your lifestyle. Yeah, I try and tell people all the time, once you get a diagnosis, it's not a a death sentence or whatever. Um, for me, it's an awakening. A lot of people hit pause on their life. I always tell everybody I didn't hit pause. I hit fast forward on my life. So again, I've done a lot of changes. Um, the biggest thing I started doing was going to the gym on a regular basis and, you know, lifting that heavy weight and the cardio in. So I work out at the gym four days a week for a little over two hours. I start by running about a mile, a mile and a half heavy weight lifting, get that pump, get that, that oxygen to the brain every day. Then on Fridays, I make sure I go out and see a lot of martial art friends. We actually have a club, a group of us that we call coffee with the masters. So we have people from all over the areas that come and have coffee with us and stuff. And so I make sure I've got the social engagement. My wife made sure that uh, my eating improved because I had a sweet tooth. And if you realize when somebody gets dementia, they end up getting what's called a super sweet tooth. So she had to really watch to make sure I stayed away from the sweets and was eating more of my greens, which I didn't care for greens as much. And I never was a big meat eater. So again, we were stay with uh, fish and chicken and things. So she made sure I stayed on the healthy and I avoided that ice cream at night, those candy bars during the day, the donuts on the weekend. She made sure I cut those things out. So it was a big lifestyle change. It's similar to when somebody gets diagnosed with, um, what does my count? Diabetes. Diabetes. You have to stop doing sugar or whatnot. That's why when I meet other people that have dementia, I'm asking them a lot of questions because a lot of the people I find out have dementia, they haven't made any lifestyle changes. I, that's my question to them. So what do you do once you got the diagnosis? And they look at me like, well, what do you mean? And I go, well, do you go to the gym? Do you take supplements? Are you doing this? And they're like, no, I just sleep a lot or something. And so it's it's like when you get those diagnoses, you've got to do that lifestyle change. I mean, I don't go to the gym for two hours a day on Monday through Thursday because I love it. I do it because that's part of my 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 protocol, my process I do. I, I take my supplements. I try and get some sleep. I've actually stopped taking my Aricept two years ago because of the side effects and went to CBD oil that gets me, uh, keeps me level throughout the day. Um, it took my wife and friends like two years because I didn't smoke or do drugs or anything to, to explain, understand that CBD isn't like smoking and getting high. So um, I take that now daily and that, that was life-changing as it is. And I'm in a clinical trial in uh, UCSF up in San Francisco. And when I was going through the, um, uh, what's it called? 
the interview to get into it. My wife says, I just have one question. She got on the phone. She goes, if he has to get off this CBD, he's not coming in that clinical trial with you guys because it has. Did you notice well, t- wait, tell us a little bit about that. How did CBD, because we get comments all the time on being patient about CBD. And we've even interviewing, uh, interviewed scientists who are starting to study the impact of um, CBD on people diagnosed with dementia. We don't have the data yet because it's right. early days in the study. Studies and to make any kind of conclusion, uh, conclusive um, uh, analysis. But I'm, I'm curious, from your personal perspective, you started taking CBD on a daily basis, is it? And what changed? Um, so every day, um, like a lot of people with dementia, you get tired. Like it's like your battery on your cell phone dies out and you got to recharge. I'd have to go in a back room, say, from two-ish from two o'clock to 3.30 or so for an hour or two hours in a dark room, basically to recharge my brain. It wasn't like my body was tired, my mind was like overworked. So I explained, I used to tell people like your cell phone, you could have the best cell phone, but when the battery dies, the only thing you can do is recharge it. I needed to go in that back room. So now when I come home from the gym about 11-ish or so, Um, I get in the shower and I put the CBD underneath my tongue and I have a friend that makes a very special um, mixture for me where it's got a tiny 0.3 of THC in it to help uh, get through the brain barrier better. So basically what it does is it doesn't get me high because it's not that THC. It's like vanilla. It just keeps me on the level playing field. So I I don't have to take the nap. My mind doesn't get overly tired. And because I'm not napping during the day, now at night, people with dementia have broken sleep. You're up every couple of hours. That's why I used to do all my research about all my diseases and reading and stuff. It was because I wasn't sleeping. Now I take something called TCHA. So the TCHC THC is what gets you high. And by lighting a match the heat, and it opens it up. Well, this is THCA that has to stay refrigerated, which then eliminates the high of it. So it's more of a total relaxation. So, um, so the CBD gets me through the day, and then I take a very small amount of THCA right before bed, and in about 15 or 20 minutes with a small like uh, CBD chocolate that's got a little bit of melatonin in, that, in it as well, I sleep for seven hours. So again, that's another thing with people with dementia, that broken sleep. So if you're not sleeping at night, the average person is going to get grouchy. Well, somebody with dementia, not only are you going to get grouchy, but your brain's going to have, as they call it, that brain fog of not being able to focus. So again, it works differently on different people um it works great for me my wife says it's a life-changing thing so i've been using it for about four or five years now so it's interesting i mean i'm glad that science is finally looking at this because we have people like you who say that it really does work Um, and we should say you know you live in a state where marijuana is legalized so it's easy for you to access good supply um, and and there are people out there who don't and you know um by, by any means, we're not really advocating that people just go out and, and try to find CBD, THC. I, I, I assume you had recommendations from people who are well-versed and, um, I mean, you know, and, and, and consulted your doctor before you did so? Yes, and the strange thing is when you say consulted my doctor, because it's not licensed in all the states, and I go to Kaiser, where Kaiser's not just in California. So the chief neurologist I see because of my early age of dementia, I've seen the chief neurologist. She can't talk about it because 
it's not legal in all the states where Kaiser is at. So even though it's legal in California, she can't initiate the conversation. So when we brought it up about getting off the Aricept because of the um, side effects, she says, yes, a lot of my patients are using CBD. So when I introduced the conversation, she could then have that conversation. She says a lot of her patients are going that way. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I'm, I'm actually, I can't wait for the research to tell us, you know, I mean, there's, there, there, I, we hear from people like you all the time that they, they are using CBD and it is helping. So um, I wanted to ask you though, uh, one of the things you told me earlier is that you still practice martial arts, right? And um, I think a lot of people would be surprised by that because martial arts was one of the reasons why you are, it could, you know, potentially be a reason why you, you have dementia. So tell us a little bit about the role martial arts plays in your life today. Well, it was really because of the contact. So again, you can uh, practice and train in martial arts without that con contact. So that's why there, there's those punching bags. That's why there's the form, which is like an art of dancing, where you see practitioners, you know, doing certain techniques, uh, different things. I used to compete in the forms competition as well as the fighting. And I also you do open kata, where you do a form to music or whatnot and stuff. Where I used to do aerial cartwheels and flip flops and jumping, spinning hook kicks and whatnot. So. I still train and stretch and work out. And actually I have several friends that have uh, martial arts studios that or dojangs. And actually I go over there as a guest instructor and I, and I teach at different things. But again, I'll work with students on their kicking techniques or whatnot, but I don't physically kick somebody in the head and I don't get kicked. I don't do the sparring part of it anymore. And another part is I got into boxing, which I do on Tuesdays now, and I'm actually up to 10 rounds. It took me four years to get up to 10 rounds, but I do 10 rounds of mitt work where I have a coach calling out different boxing combinations, one, two, one, two, three. And as soon as I get a good combination, he'll change it on me or he'll tease me and put up his one hand and tell me a two and I'll hit it. And he's like, no, I would have put that other hand up. So he's working my body as well as my mind. But my wife says you can do all that you want, just no contact. And like I said, is I, you can still train in martial arts without the contact. And that's what I do. Yeah, that's amazing. So you were diagnosed around 50 years old. Is that right? I was diagnosed at the age of 51, two months before my 52nd birthday. So I've been Okay, and now, now you're 58 or 59? Um, 59 tomorrow. Is my oh, birthday happy tomorrow. birthday. <laughs> um, so tell me in the, in the years that you have been, um, from diagnosis to now, um, living, living with, um, dementia, um, tell, tell me a little bit about, have you noticed a change? Have the lifestyles helped, um, the progression? Um, do you feel like you're getting better, worse? Where are you on the spectrum? Um, well, to be honest with you, I'm pretty happy where I'm at after eight years, because again, and you do a lot of reading when they talk about uh, dementia, typically they say uh, life existence is eight years to 20 years. But again, that's most people aren't, they don't get that early diagnosis. So again, an early diagnosis is so important. So I was very fortunate with that early diagnosis, but in the eight years that I've had the disease as of last month, I'm still, um, I consider myself so highly functional. Um, I don't drive at night because I'm just not as com 
uh, confident. Uh, I have the word finding problems all the time. If you notice during our conversation, I close my eyes a lot. I have a dementia coach and that was one of the techniques. It, it allows me to find the words a little bit easier because I, it, the, my brain is bouncing around trying to find that word. Uh, my smell and my taste, they don't work very well anymore. So I have a hard time with food. So I start getting into routines. Um, to the point where I'll have peanut butter and jelly for three weeks in a row. And I have to have that every day for lunch just because it's a routine. And for some reason, it'll change into a salami sandwich. And right now my wife's upset with me because it's a uh, Jamba juice. I have their protein bowl, the strawberry protein bowl, where no matter where we're at, when it gets around one I'm like, we got to find a Jamba juice because people with dementia tend to get in routines and it's easier just to stay in a routine uh, on that. So, over the years, there's been a lot of different changes, but I've been very fortunate that my wife has helped me with it. And we've created processes. I use my phone a lot too. I take a lot of pictures because for me, pictures are my trigger to my memory. We've had the opportunity to take many, many trips all over the world. We'll talk about Ireland and I won't remember it. Well, I pull out my phone, I'll start looking at photos. And I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, I remember going to the Guinness place. I remember going to the south of, of, uh, of Ireland. I remember going here or there, but for me, it's uh, pictures help me trigger my memory. Do you find that your short-term or long-term memory is impacted more or both? It's my short-term memory, like a lot of people. My long-term memory is fine and actually, um, I'm in the clinical trial, like I said, in San Francisco, uh, it's called Basket, uh, the clinical trial for UCSF and the clinical drug that I'm on right now that I, I keep telling them on my interviews, I go monthly for my infusion is I feel my memory is being opened up from the back coming forward. So I'll be laying in bed and all of a sudden I'll have weird memories that will just flood to my brain. Nothing I was thinking about. All of a sudden I could remember where I lived when I was a little kid and every single neighbor, I could tell you this was Mrs. Jin's house. Uh, Brandy lived there, the Webbers lived there, the Thompsons here, the Lees here. I could remember all these people's names and faces, but I couldn't even remember what I had for lunch the day before. So when my wife was still working, she would constantly have to call me and said, did you have lunch? And I got to the point where I started to fib to her and she started saying, send me a picture of what you had for lunch. So because I would forget to have lunch a lot of days. Yeah, smart, yeah. smart wife. <laughs> very blessed. I'm very blessed. She's off yeah. camera right now. We well, we hear that she's welcome to join us. Um, we 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 hear that a lot though. That I mean, the support of the partner is so essential in this process, right? And I I feel like um, if you have a supportive partner, it's it's almost like your your decline is less. You know, you um, which is is proving to be the case, at least in my, in, in the people that, who we talk to. Um, and you can understand why too, because again, that social interaction, um, coming up with a plan as a couple is, is really important. It's a, it's a two, you know, in tandem effort. Yeah. She keeps me on pace. And it's funny because also it's hard with couples about getting the diagnosis because an example when i went into the doctor to see the a chief neurologist and she was asking me questions and stuff like a lot of couples she would ask me a question and i didn't know the answer and i would do this i'd look yeah. over at tracy and she'd answer and then the doctor would say hmm and then we'd go on I, she asked me questions and i'd answer all since she get to another question i wasn't sure if i'd do this and tracy would answer it 
not knowing we were doing all of a sudden that doctor says, Trace, I need you to just step outside for the next 15 minutes when I finish the interview. And then when she came back in, she explained like, what did I do wrong? She goes, you're answering half the questions that he couldn't answer. And she went, oh my goodness. I've been doing that for, for years. So couples, which is a good thing because you help each other out in that sense. But sometimes that's an uh, aha moment that if you're covering for the person a little bit too often. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So um, how do you see the future, Stephen? Tell us a little bit about what, you, I mean, do you take this day to day or what are you looking towards um, for the future? Um, well, I, again, I try and live in the moment because uh, you have today and, and like they say, today's a present and you should take advantage of the present and open it up. And so I, I do that. But at the same time, I do plan for the future. The thing that I look forward to planning are, are trips. Um, like when we do go to like we've been to Europe, we've gone to Ireland, we've gone so many places I can't even remember Greece and other places. But Tracy allows me to do all the planning of it. I do all the planning. I do the research. I look at the dates. Like a lot of people, I check the weather, what it's going to be that time of the year, whatnot, on different trips and whatnot. So I try and plan three to four trips a year. So I'm always looking towards the future. Um, this year's almost over. So we're looking at uh, either Croatia next year. We always go to um, Cabo in June. Our son's in Hawaii now. So we visited him a few months ago. We're looking to go back to Hawaii again. And then another one might be um, an African safari is a possibility. So I'm looking forward to planning those trips for next year. Wow, that's a lot to look forward to. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we, we thank you so much um, for sharing your story with us. Um, I, you know, we, we've spoken about CTE in the past. Um, it definitely falls in the umbrella of dementia. Um, diagnosis, I, I think, is a tricky one. Um, you know, whether it's Alzheimer's or CTE for that, that matter, it seems getting to the getting to diagnosis is, is often a journey, um, no matter who you are. Um, so we appreciate you sharing your story with us. Um, and, um, you know, and it's inspiring to hear that you're still, um, you're taking such good care of your health and being really proactive. So thanks so much for Thank joining you for the opportunity to share my story today with you. Do you have, do you document, um, is there a website you have or anything like that? Uh, people know me. It's, I use my Facebook on a daily basis. I post a lot of things and people know that it's kind of like my diary. I, you know, I post when I go to UCSF for my drug infusions. I'll, I'll post that. I'll post articles. Um, I was excited to post that my drug has now been given a name. So it's even one step further about getting approved or whatnot. So again, What's if you want to. <clears throat> okay. Uh, go, sir. Emma. It's G-O-S-U-R-A-N-E-M-A-B, and it's recently been in the news um, because I've actually, I'm in phase two, the second basket trial, and they're doing all the documentation about the first basket trial that's been very promising. I'm to the point where my clinical trial is through, and I'm actually on open label, so I'm getting the drug now on a monthly basis because it is showing such good pro promise, again, focusing on the tau protein. Yeah, I'm. I always wonder why they give the, the names of these drugs like such bad names that you can never remember. <laughs> it's like they're connecting five doctors' names together or something. 
<laughs> All right. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for sharing your story. I'm definitely an inspiration. We'll definitely follow you on Facebook and check in with us again when you finish those trials, because we would love to hear firsthand um, how much improvement there's been and you know what the difference is. I mean, it's great to hear that there are trials out there that where you feel you're, you're getting better. So we'll, yes. we'll definitely love to hear more about that um, in the future. Thank you again. I really appreciate today. Okay. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.